Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's show. My name is Spencer Walsh. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We have a good one for you. And a very kind of tricky show, I might say, today, because we are dealing with multiple live situations. And, of course, the first one being this ongoing, you know, whole uh, ground war in Europe situation, Russia in Ukraine, explosions shaking Kiev in the second, uh, Ukraine's second largest city. Um, we are going to catch you up on uh, everything you need to know there and, um, you know, how we can effectively punish Russia without maybe uh, starting World War III. Um, also, we're going to take a look at some of the reactions from some some figures past, uh, such as Hillary Clinton and what she had to say on Rachel Maddow tonight, kind of representing the establishment liberal perspective. And also, uh, you know, as I'm always wanting to do, take a little trip across the pond and talk about our other favorite cursed country, the United Kingdom, where Labor leader uh, Keir Starmer says that a no-fly zone is not an option, but will raise Ukrainians please with the government. So, it's going to be interesting to watch that dynamic there very, very closely, because it does show a lot about, you know, whether or not, or how drastic things could get in the future. Also, we are watching Biden State of the Union and the Texas 2022 primary elections where we are seeing some interesting races for the left where they're trying to get some primary wins on the more establishment Democrats, but uh, you know, in Jessica scenarios and um, um, Greg Cesar, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, but, you know, the question is, it's looking very good for actually both of them right now. Um, but Henry Cuellar, it's actually, no, actually, it's getting kind of tight <laughs> for for Jessica Cisneros in Texas' 20th district, but we'll come back to that uh, throughout the show. But we're starting off with the top of the uh, top of the top headlines today. Um, so pretty much where things are, you know, militarily at this time. Um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine entering now its seventh day. Here, according to the New York Times, uh, entering um, you know with, with some six six hundred and sixty thousand refugees seeking help in Poland, Hungary, Moldova, Romania, and Slovakia, according to the UN Refugee Agency, the United States plans to bar Russian planes from American airspace shortly. U.S. officials said. 
So um, that's probably what Biden will be announcing, um, probably as we are speaking uh, with the State of the Union that is going on right now. Uh, the Russian military campaign appears to have shifted towards charting civilian areas with increasingly powerful weapons. So really going for a really awful, awful shock and all campaign. Um, seeing in a way that, you know, you really haven't, you, you didn't with the Americans in Iraq. Um, you know, you saw it in leaked videos and things like that, but you did not see in popular social media war crimes playing out in real time, which is incredible uh, feat that we're seeing and just horrific, horrific feat that we're seeing here. Um so the UN says that 136 civilians and only 13 children have been killed so far, and President Zelensky accused Russia of war crimes, which you know clearly seems to have happened there. Uh, you know, a projectile hit Kiev's main radio and television station or tower, killing five and forcing television stations off the air, according to Ukrainian officials. So yeah, and they're bombing government buildings, and for example, that one in Kharkiv, that you know, uh, government palace, that pretty much got blown up. Um, and so, yeah, and the, the, uh, the blast also took place near the, uh, Holocaust Memorial Center to top it all off. And this is again, as they claim to be doing denazification efforts here. So, um, yeah, really just draws more absurdity to the whole absurd situation. So President Biden, uh, is in the process of vowing that the, uh, the state of the union, that uh, Vladimir Putin will be paying a price for invading Ukraine. His speech aimed to rally the world as Moscow's forces rained down missiles on Ukrainian cities and prepared to lay siege to the capital of Kiev. So it's going to be interesting to see very clear, like pretty much the only important thing uh, that we're going to have to see really for all world leaders tonight and over the next couple of days, it's for, uh, tonight really for Biden, but the question is what, what line will he draw in the sand when it comes to uh, action on Russia. Jen Psaki's been always always very, very clear on this, that they will not establish a no-fly zone. They will not in any way risk NATO troop engagement, you know, kind of directly with, or U.S. troop engagement directly with Russian troop engagement. So that is going to be a very, very hotly avoided thing because that could obviously, you know, really going escalating too far with boots on the ground and forcing a no-fly zone. That could lead to nuclear war and everyone just, you know, dying, which is probably the worst possible outcome, I'm going to guess. Um, so we are also, probably the, the very scary situation is a 40-mile-long 40, 40 convoy of Russian tanks and vehicles sat about 20 miles north of Kiev uh, at this time. Um, so an explosion that, uh, you know, devastated a large administrative building, and this is, as I talked about before, in Kharkiv, killing seven people, according to Ukrainian officials. That's, again, at least 136 civilians, according to the UN, dead because of these attacks here, as we can go through them. Um, yeah, so this is, let's get, this is like a really kind of a, a, a scary shift here in strategy, and going to the New York Times on this. Um, a pretty much a menacing presence. We're, we've seen these videos of just these like big black green army style trucks rolling through the uh, rolling through the hills, rolling rolling through the street. Um, in this, um, you know, all throughout like his, these Ukrainian countrysides, and just you know moving through steadily, just taking, uh, you know, town after town. Although they, uh, as we, as we now have been, uh, you know, halted or delayed a little bit, but. This convoy now growing to 40 miles long on a roadway north of Kiev. 
with a number of homes and buildings seen burning nearby, really just taking an incredibly aggressive tactic. Um, and you know, I've, I've seen it's hard to it's hard to imagine. You know, thinking about if you're a Russian soldier doing this right now, if if we if the sentiments that we've seen are true, and I don't like. You know, I've seen like some social media posts about you know, oh, this one individual Russian soldier, like he his texted his mom like how bad I feel like we're committing just this awful you know brother against brother war here like this we should not be doing this this is a crime like I really do wonder how they are feeling coming at the, the Russian soldiers the Russian people uh, at this time and you know what they know about the crimes the government is the their government is committing in their name you know we would not like uh, we would not like the things I, I personally. Do not like the things that the U.S. government does in the names, you know, protecting "quote unquote" American values that you supposedly all Americans get behind. So I think that's you know an important thing to remember here. But this this tactical shift here, according to these uh, analysts, is a you know a step up here, a, a step towards phase two, um, according to Mathieu, Mathieu Boulage, an expert at. Chatham House, a leading policy institute in London. Uh, so saying this, this phase two means a shift to much more brutal, tactless, unrestricted warfare, which will lead to many more civilian casualties and bloodier battles. And, you know, we had a guy on, like, Russian State TV coming out and saying, what is the point of a world if Russia isn't in it? Like, which is, is if that is quite a thing to say uh, by all stretch of the imagination. Like, you know, like, that is, like, you know, that's just like... You know, what is the point of even living? You know, I, I guess I'll just kill myself. Like, that is the that is the equivalent of Russia, you know, just being so dramatic like that on the world stage. But, yeah, this is like, this was like if your friend was doing that, but not as a joke. Like, they're standing literally over a building ledge and, you know, literally had all of the, the you and all your friends, you know, the entire international community tied on together with you in this scary, scary situation. So that is essentially what we're looking at here because, like, this is a, this is a nuclear situation that I think the the key priorities here, if we're looking at how to resolve the situation, first should be, um, you know, stopping all possibility of nuclear war, de-escalating this, possi- uh, this conflict, and limiting all suffering as much as possible. First, that starts with Ukrainian suffering, a- accurately punishing and pretty much, um, you know, arresting, frankly, the people in this regime that are responsible for this, um, you know, and I think a lot of them are going to be like, well, hey, what about, you know, all the American presidents, you know, and I think they, you know, would definitely have a point there, um, you know, especially if you talk about, you know, the Bush administration, things like that, um, but, you know, they need to be, I think the best thing we can do, and the thing that needs to be our entire policy focus is directing our right rightful ire uh, away from the Russian people and towards the um, towards the Russian oligarchy, and that is something that I think we have fundamentally seen fail to do. Um, and you know, it's for a lot of legitimate reasons. You know, one of the factors like Europe still needs gas. That is a very legitimate reason to you know go easy on the gas companies for, you know, the current situation, you know, while still genuinely wanting to help Ukraine as a political, like, I can understand that, to, you know, to be quite honest, but, you know, again, all these people, especially if you look at London politics, like, the, especially the conservative party and their conduct, because if you look, if you don't know, like, huge parts of London, huge parts of England, just bought up by kids of Russian oligarchs, a few hundreds of them, 
all collectively worth around hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and, you know, there's an estate in Essex that's, like, filled with their mansions, and, you know, people are starting to kind of raise their eyebrows about it now, but Jeremy Corbyn, a few years ago, he brought it up, and people are like, oh, this, this is horrific, you know, awful behavior, like, and these people fund conservative campaign, like, they fund Tory campaigns, um, they play a role here in America as well, um, so that kind of shows you where they're at. But again, here, about this this military convoy, uh, while the Ukrainian military has air power and has missiles capable of striking the convoy, its abilities are limited. Targeting such a convoy would present its own challenges as well as risk inciting Russians to retaliate. Uh, the Ukrainians attacking it from air would have had a would have to make a uh, would have had to make a very difficult decision of taking their very limited air force and going after what is a very difficult target, said Frederick Kagan, the director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute, which has partnered with the Institute of the Study of War to provide updates on the Russian invasion. He noted that the Russian military is likely defending the convoy aggressively, and it was also possible that Ukrainian commanders are waiting to engage the armored vehicles until they enter Kiev, where they could be more easily destroyed uh, you know, with confined streets and neighborhoods and, you know, anti-tank, anti-tank missiles, you know, it's really going to be quite incredible to see, you know, a city like Kiev, which has been, you know, again, it has been just complete, like, standing for quite a long time. I, I don't even know how it fared in World War II. I don't know if it fared that well. Uh, but to see, you know, a mo- you know, a modern European capital reduced to rubble. This is not Syria. Oh, you know, like, that is uh, what so many people have been saying. You know, that is if that does happen, God forbid. Um, that is going, you know, is going to be one of the things we need to watch, uh, probably the most. Yo. Yeah, yo, yo. Oh, hey, I'm talking now. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. You are listening to the Spencer yeah. Walsh Radio Network. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get right into it. And we were talking today a little bit about, um, you know, one of these, one of these, the biggest policy probably today, right now, that would lead to de-escalation conflict and possibly, you know, a focus towards a just um, punishment for a lot of what we saw going on here. Um, has has got to be the has got to be the no fly zone here, which has been raised. Um, you know, personally, I think the best you know go target the target the regime, target the sources of funding for the regime. I think that you know target them economically as much as possible, and try to target sanctions away from Russian people as much as possible. I think this is the best like you know proactive thing to do. But one thing you should definitely not do when it comes to uh, uh, you know if you want to if you're serious about de-escalating the conflict is this no-fly zone right here. Uh, so let's go to the Independent. Um, so Keir Starmer told Ukrainians that living in Britain, uh, living in Britain, that he will speak to the government over their pleas to support a no-fly zone over the nation. Uh, the Labour leader was urged to back the enforcement of the zone after Russian planes dropped bombs on the city of Kharkiv on Tuesday. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has rejected calls echoed by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and warned it would trigger a wider conflict. And by the way, Boris Johnson is absolutely right. And so, so far, Starmer, to his credit, has said, and all European leaders have said that Biden, uh, 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 
European leaders, um, you know, so far we've had a few elected officials, but that foreign policy establishment is, you know, really firmly pushing in the direction of no-fly zone. You know, we, and some of the reporters, too, some of the people in the media, you know, Richard Engel, a big Biden supporter, up about until Afghanistan when he realized, you know, he'd have to find a new country. And what happened then? He turned on Biden hard on that. What did he do recently? He said, you know, well, what is the... um what, what are we looking at here? You know, we are looking at a military convoy rolling towards the, um, ro- rolling towards Kiev, you know, a, a European capital city or somewhere, whatever he said. It's like, are we going to stand by in silence or are we going to set up a no-fly zone? So pretty much just what we're saying, are we going to let a truly awful thing happen? Nobody is saying that is, it's, you know, it's not a true tr- uh, crime where, you know, everyone involved should be kind of deeply and severely punished, no doubt. Um, but, you know, is it worth starting nuclear war over, which are risking starting nuclear war over and risking starting a ground conflict uh, over, you know, NATO troops shooting down Russian planes? That is not at all where we want to be or where we can be. So that is, you know, that is something we need to avoid at all costs. So um, good to see the other side of the pond holding things together. Um and let's see, this is someone who could have been a president weighing in um, on what she would have done had she, uh, you know, or her opinion, just her policy read on the situation. Let's take a listen. That is a possible way out. If the Ukrainians, with our help, uh, can impose enough economic pain on uh, Putin and. I get it. So. A, a, a very much a kind of core, a, a, a basic Hillary Clinton at her core, I would say, is like the best way of I would I would describe it. It's like she's like a very much like basic, uh, standard Cold War style, um, very much liberal person. So um, like so she believes in the kind of the New World Order set up cooperation. Um, you know, countries can work together to, you know, kind of root out bad actors and things like that. She is a hardcore believer in that, at least on the front of her kind of, you know, foreign policy rhetoric. That is like, her rhetoric has not really evolved since the pre-Trump era, you know, like pretty much her entire politics. But, you know, what she's saying here is, again, kind of the laughable, you know, Ukraine is going to put some real economic pressure on Russia, but, you know, while they're being invaded, yeah, it's going to be, no, it's going to be EU, it's going to be uh, U.S. It's going to be the rest of the world just doing things wherever they can, and you know it's not going to be Ukraine as a lever point there. And so, you know, the question is, what does what what like where do we go from there? And then what? As um, shout out to Cristobal and um, Soccer and Jetty for their their little their their uh phrase there, which I think is such a good way of putting it. Is like the best question to ask when a foreign policy policy decision is made. Is and and then what? Like what happens next? Um, so here is what she goes on to say. And yeah, putting yeah, putting pain on the Russian economy uh, is uh, what she said says needs to happen. Let's rewind a little bit and then go. Pain on uh, Putin and sadly the Russian people, uh, combined with providing weapons, that that might be the only way that right now I can see us getting to a stalemate. Uh, that might save the Ukrainian people from even greater uh, tragedy. That is- again, so like, th- like this is like what a such a like bog standard deep state, you know, complete, um, r- like 
like very very scary way to like think about it. It's like, oh yeah, first of all, we have just you know Ukrainian people. They're going to put the pressure on the. Is here. a possible way out if the Ukrainians, with our help, uh, can impose enough economic pain on uh, Putin and sadly the Russian people. And again, no, it's not because. The only thing that happens when sanctions are put on the people, when, like, broad sanctions are, you know, uh, really, really effective on on the economy of the people at large, the only thing that happens is, you know, broad suffering and broad increase in anti-American sentiment, which never, ever, ever goes well. You know, if you do sanctions that's, like, strategically target, you know, a bad regime, like, that is going to go a lot better than if you kind of, you know, really hammer, hammer, hammer people uh, with sanctions. Again, hammering the Russian people with sanctions, not to mention a very, like, you know, questionable strategic thing to do, is also a very unethical moral morally bad thing to do and and this really i think serves and should serve as a reminder uh for so many people that hillary clinton in terms of foreign policy is really pretty far towards uh the right in a way that a lot of people i think didn't quite appreciate during the 2016 campaign because they were so worried about the psychotic nature of trump um but yeah so that is a good thing that maybe you know we dodged a bullet and biden uh, the Afghanistan exeter is the one. If you look at Hillary Clinton's record as Secretary of State, she would not be the type of person to pull us out of Afghanistan. That is for sure. I mean, I think the thing we have to think about this is again on the proactive side. Uh, we have to really go after again the source of the funding of the Russian regime that is pushing this forward because the, broadly, what we can tell, the war is not popular. In Russia, even with incredibly conservative, um, uh, or every or conservative, you know, state media like propaganda media, twenty four seven blaring this this in because they you know they know people are getting bombed. They hear about it. They you know our social media has not been entirely cut off in Russia. It has, for example, in China. I don't think they have you know I don't know if they have the infrastructure actually or the effort to do that, um, but, you know, again, taking that and removing that, F, removing that incentive out of there is going to be so, so key and so, so important, um, but the key thing that we cannot do is, again, humiliate the nation and humiliate the nation in a way where they can't bounce back and create broad anti-American sentiment, which we have done so many times. Like We can't make this into like a Treaty of Versailles moment where Russia is, you know, as they said in kind of a leaked article, you know, their greatest fear, and I think this is probably more held than, you know, we have to invade Ukraine. Uh, you know, this is probably a, a perception held with more of the Russian people. It's like, we want to be, we don't want to be a satellite nation like we were in the wake of the 1990s, which is something that, again, the United States should unequivocally not do. And the key to that is to, you know, resolving tensions, uh, you know, with you know, broader tension, trying to resolve broader tensions um, in whatever way possible and further uh, attacking this really, really awful regime here. All right, let's go now to our next story, which is a live check-in on Joe Biden's State of the Union address. Let's see what he's been up to.
Buckingham Palace has announced the death of His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh. It's news flash. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's go on to some of what we are seeing. Um, so, really, you know, we're looking at the Biden speech right now. Right now, they're they're showing a, a cute little boy uh, with, you know, blonde hair and glasses and a, a nice little blue bow tie. Or not bow tie, um, you know, full tie there. Uh, but he's probably, probably out there looking sharp, Jack. Um, but apparently he has been uh, talking a lot about inflation. You know, Biden really has no choice but to address it. Uh, for those watching Body Language, Manchin just stood up for lower your costs, not your wages, and the Republicans he is sitting with did not. So that's, you know, suggesting something uh, that Joe Manchin apparently is trying to tailor the speech. Um, or Biden here is probably trying to tailor the speech, uh, you know, Probably recognizing more appropriately that, you know, Americans not going to watch this thing too much, if I had to guess. You know, no one's expecting, especially in this context, like, what is the president going to say about inflation? You know, they actually want to see him do something about it uh, for a change. Uh, when Biden says one way to fight inflation is driving down wages, he is talking about the Federal Reserve policy. Higher Fed interest rates, uh, rates slow down the ec- economy, weigh down hiring, cool off wages, and curb demand that helps slow price gains. Um, you know, and that is something that we did to pretty disastrous effects, I would say, uh, in the 1980s. The the Volcker policy uh, with Jimmy Carter turned out to be an incredibly just hor- horrific, horrifically, um, you know, disempowering, shall we say, time for the working class. And they definitely never really recovered from one in terms uh, in terms of wages um, in a labor market that they only really just got back. And now is you know really being tied away, but of course with the subsequent runaway inflation, that labor market is not too good. Um, but again, nothing really said. What what Biden says on inflation here not as relevant as what he is saying on Ukraine, which he is probably you know going to be addressing right off the top. Um, and he's looks like he's being sort of smart about this here. He's laying out the steps he's trying to take to ensure that sanctions on Russia don't cost American consumers. Uh, and that is going to be big with prices of like you know basic things like wheat. Um, we're talking about uh, gas. Um, you know that is going to be a big thing. And I'm currently watching Alexandria Ocasio Cortez standing up, clapping for uh, promises Joe Biden's making on climate that he knows and she knows and everybody in that house knows is never going to happen and they will never do anything about it, which makes me crazy. Uh, but, um, yeah, so inflation is the U S um, yeah, inflation, yeah, major concern, uh, as they roll up measures to damage the Russian economy there. So that is really what Americans care most about in this this conflict. They care about how is it going to affect their economy at home. They want the policy here to address gas prices. They want tough, tough response, but so far, they do not want truth on the ground. That's you know kind of a summary of the polling. Uh, the release of oil supplies here, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, that's going to ease some skyrocketing prices. But a nuclear deal with Iran, which appears to be on the brink but not sealed, would help by bringing more potentially millions of barrels of Iranian oil back onto the market, baby. Get that Iranian gas flowing um, would be better than encouraging you know American fracking and drilling and things like that. For sure, 
Uh, but <laughs> that would be interesting to see if we see another uh, Iranian nuclear deal. Um, so let's just see and move on to what we are what we are uh, looking at. So by now, he is yeah defending his agenda, moving through, and um, you know we should see a lot of more of that. Uh, you know really kind of empty promises from somebody who is not going to be able to deliver on a lot as he has no power uh, legislatively or interest in pursuing it. With that being said, let's go on to the race here. So pretty much nothing has really changed from the top of the show. Uh, 53 and 57% reporting for Cisneros and Cesar respectively. Uh, and they're both leading one by 5%, Cisneros by 5%, around 2,000 votes. And by the way, you know, Justice Democrats working families party need a serious, serious rethink if they cannot beat somebody under FBI investigation and by hopefully a serious amount. Uh, so <laughs> we will see. We will see uh, what happens come election time. And, you know, it's a very good chance that that seat, which is a pretty strong Democratic seat, could trend towards red with the midterms coming the way that they are. Uh, in the 35th uh, district, it looks like Greg, Greg Caesar is in a very good position. He's at 60% in what is a, what is that, four-way race. So he will be doing quite well, to say the least. But it's going to be a little bit tighter to see uh, if Cisneros holds on with just over half of the votes in thus far. All right, so yeah, that's just pretty much about where we are right now come primary time. And that's going to be, you know, and the, the the broader conversation here is, and I think it is a very interesting conversation, a very interesting and a very fair conversation to have if you look at, you know, literally what we just talked about, uh, which is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just sitting there in that chamber, uh, you know, a few months after voting for that infrastructure package, killing the progressives leverage. We talked about it a million times um, and just being like, you know, hey, that we are not going to use any of our power uh, when you, if you put us in here. Uh, we're not going to try to go to the base at all. We're going to try to do that work from within it strategy. They have been more inactive, you know, on the sidelines than ever, um, you know. And I will be. I really want to, like, you know, whenever they want to change that, it's fine with me. But like, you got to acknowledge the facts, and the facts are things are not going the way that they should. Here, I would definitely say that. Um, also, you know, in other news here, Greg Abbott, he won the Republican primary, uh, which is not going to be a big surprise. And a lot of people, I got, you know, these big news alerts. Uh, Gre- Beto O'Rourke won with 92% of the vote in the Democratic primary um, against no real opposition. Uh, you know, let's see how much he loses by against Greg Abbott in the general election. Um, you know, I'm guessing the margins will be quite, quite significant. Um, you know, Bill O'Rourke literally continuing to be, um, you know, literally the just the biggest failure who somehow still gets opportunities in uh, political history. No, it's definitely not true. But anyway, we will be back this Friday. <laughs>